There's a story about a man who was walking up a mountain. He's walking up this mountain, and he hears a voice that says, Take me with you. And he stops, and he's looking around. He doesn't see anybody. Then he looks down, and he sees a snake on the ground. And so the man says, well, if I pick you up, you'll bite me. And the snake says, no, I I won't bite you. I I need help. You're fast. I'm slow. Would you carry me up to the mountain? Would you be kind and carry me up to the top of the mountain? And I'll let you be. And against his better judgment, the man picks up the snake, puts it inside his jacket, and, and continues marching up the top of the hill. Gets up to the top of the mountain. Gets to the very top. He takes the snake out, and guess what the snake does? Bites him. The man falls down to the ground, writhing in pain, and he says, you lied to me. You lied to me. You said you wouldn't bite me. And the snake says, I did not lie. You knew who I was when you picked me up. Now, we hear that story, and we think, well, of course, he should have known better. Of course, he should have known better. That's a snake. That's what snakes do. And so we stand here and we're like, absolutely right. He should have known better. And so should we, right? We should know better. But don't we kind of do the same thing? Don't we believe the lies of the snake? Don't we pick up the snake when we know it's not good for us? I mean, let's just... Consider what that looks like. Don't we click on the internet site when we know we shouldn't go there and look at those things? Don't we take another drink when we know it's not good for us, when we know it's in excess? Don't we feel like we can judge somebody else, maybe just because I'm a little bit better than them and I'm more mature than them, so I'm just judging them? Don't we gossip about one another but call it prayer requests? See, don't we believe the lies of the snake? Don't we do the same thing? Listen, I, I want to ask you this question. When I make that comment about us believing the snake, what's your response? When I make the comment about those of us watching today believing the snake, what is your response? Because typically there's one of two responses. The first response is one of pride and arrogance. It says, not me. Not, not me. I don't believe the lies of that snake. No way I don't do that. I don't do the things I shouldn't do. Man, if that's you, if that's your experience, man, that's awesome. I'd love to actually connect with you. You are in unique company if that's you who doesn't believe the lies of the snake. In fact, the only person that I can think of that did not believe the lies of the snake was actually the Son of God, Jesus, God in the flesh. So you're in pretty unique company if you don't believe the lies of the snake. The second response, the second response is we look and we say, that's totally me. That is totally me. I may not be what I once was, but I also recognize I'm not yet who God wants me to be. God is still chiseling me. God is still redeeming me. But in that process, I still at times struggle with believing the lies of the snake. I struggle doing the things I know I shouldn't do. Do you sympathize with what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 15? The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. The things I don't want to do, or the things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. How many ever been there? 
In fact, let me ask you this. When you are wrong, when you're wrong, when you have believed the lies of the serpent, when you are wrong, how do you handle it when someone confronts you, when someone challenges you? Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe it's a counselor. How do you handle it when somebody says, hey, I think you've gone off the wrong end here. I think you're believing the lies of the serpent. I think you're in the wrong. How do you respond when God confronts you? This is an important question for us to ask because if it has not happened to you, it will happen to you. And so how will you respond when you are not all that you should be or maybe when you are just plain wrong? This morning we are starting a new series over the next couple of months. We're going to be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have a a Bible, this is the seventh book of the New Testament. If you open up the New Testament, it's about two-thirds of the way in. This book is really an interesting letter because it's kind of like like opening up someone else's mail and taking a peek into what was written about them. Because the book of 1 Corinthians is is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Paul, during his missionary travels, had spent about two years planting a church in the city of Corinth. And about five years passes after he plants the church. Now Paul is in Ephesus. And he gets word. He hears about some problems in the church at Corinth. He hears about some problems, uh, and he's concerned about those issues. And so the book of uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes in response to those problems, in response to the questions that the church themselves had about what it should look like in the church. A couple things for us to understand about uh, the Corinthians, the church at Corinth. Corinth was, a, uh, was in Greece, and it was a, a powerful city uh, along the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, they had these two ports uh, that were uh, in uh, Corinth, And so what happened with Corinth is it became uh, all trade and commerce went right through the city of Corinth. For the entire Greek empire, all the the, the trade and and commerce went right through Corinth. And as a result of that, Corinth became the epicenter of wealth and culture. It was where status happened. Status and authority, those were the significant things in that city. This is what the priority was. Here in the Yakima Valley, our priority is is agricultural. For them, it was status and authority. You might think of a city like New York or or L.A. to get a picture of what Corinth would have been like. And again, they had this emphasis on on wealth and status, and that led to all sorts of interesting uh, religious views. In fact, the most prominent religious view in the city of Corinth was uh, there was a temple dated, dedicated to the, um, uh, the, the goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. And in fact, what you would do in this temple is you would, uh, you would worship through religious prostitution. Gives you an idea of the type of city that, that Paul planted this church in. So Paul plants this church, and all these people start coming to Jesus. So they start giving their lives to Jesus, but the problem is they bring they bring their hodgepodge backgrounds into, uh, into the, the, the church. Remember, they've got all these interesting religious and cultural views that they've brought into the church. So the, inside the church, they're struggling with, they still have this emphasis on status, on authority, some mixed views on sexuality. And that has create, created all sorts of problems in the church at Corinth. And so what we have 
in 1 Corinthians is a letter written by Paul to address specific issues in a church 2,000 years ago. And the challenge that's going to be for us over the next couple of, uh, of weeks and months as we look at this book, as we look at this letter, is how do we interpret these? How do we relate these issues from this church 2,000 years ago to our church, to our day and age? Absolutely, there are cultural differences. But when you set that aside and just look at the bones of the church, now their church would be similar to a modern church. They face similar issues. In fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to write about how do you handle disagreements amongst the people of God. Yep, I'm pretty sure that still happens today. Paul's going to address uh, what a Christian sexual ethic looks like in a culture where promiscuity is the norm. Yep, I think that is relevant for our day and age. Paul's going to address how does the gospel shape a, a marriage. Yep, I think that is relevant for our day and age. Paul's going to address how does the gospel tear down the barriers that we build between one another. Yeah, I think that is still relevant for us today. So even though this letter is over 2,000 years old and written to the church at Corinth, I think it has just as much value for us in our day and our age in the modern church. Ultimately, I'd say this. Ultimately, I'd say that the Apostle Paul loved the church. He was a church planter. He planted churches. He loves the church. And as he looks at the church at Corinth and as he looks at us, ultimately, I think what Paul wants is he wants us to have a strong church. He wants us to have a strong church. And a strong church is not a strong church because of great leaders, because of great programs, because of great worship, because of a beautiful building. Those, those the things don't make a strong church. A strong church is a church that is centered on Jesus. And that's going to be the message throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians. So we're jumping in today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Thank you, Pat, for reading that for us this morning. And I love how, I love how Paul, the writer of this book, starts out. Paul says this, I'm Paul, I'm called by God to be an apostle of Jesus with my brother Sosthenes uh, to the church of God in Corinth. And this is what he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those, and I want you to underline this term. If you're one of those people that, that writes in your Bible, underline this term. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's an, an important thing. We're going to come back to that. In fact, you may underline the next phrase as well. Uh, those called to be saints. Those called to be saints together with all who, those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says, grace and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, what I love about this is you think about Paul. Paul could have called these people any sorts of things. Paul could have written to the, the church at Corinth and said, hey, listen, hey, listen, you sexually immoral people. Listen, listen, you divisive people. Listen, you, you idolaters. Listen, you church at Corinth, uh, you failures who are not living up to God's standard for you. You people who are poor examples of what it means to be a Christian. You people who are poor testimonies. Paul could have said any of these things to the church at Corinth, and every one of those statements would have been true. These people were failing to live up to God's standard. These people were sexually immoral. These people were divisive. He could have called them any of these things. But he doesn't do that. 
He starts by reminding them and encouraging them exactly who they are. You see, encouragement is a basic human need. The need for encouragement is just just natural within us. Very few people can flourish without a, a, a verbal word of affirmation or approval or external declaration of our worth. Very few people can, can thrive without that. We long, we long for somebody to say, listen, I approve of who you are. We long for people to say, I approve of what you're doing. I approve of where you're going. We long for these things, every one of us. And here, Paul, he's going to have some very hard things to say to this church at Corinth. He's got some very difficult things he's going to approach with them. But he begins with this very well-rounded dose of encouragement. In fact, this may be a message in itself. This may be an application for some of us listening today. As we think about Maybe we have that critical spirit that's just natural within us. We're, we have a critical eye and we're good at giving people constructive feedback. Man, look at the Apostle Paul. He's about to give them feedback, but before he does that, he wants to encourage them. He wants them to know, hey, I approve of you. I love you. I care about you. Man, that's, that's kind of like, you ever heard that term where you're giving feedback with somebody and you've got to do the sandwich method. You've got the bread on, you've got the bread on bottom and that's like, hey, here's something positive. Here's the meat. Here's the cheese. Here's what you need to do better. And there's another piece of bread on top. That's the encouragement again. That's how the Apostle Paul starts out this letter. He speaks a word of encouragement. And he speaks a word of encouragement about who they are. About who they are. Number one, he's saying this is who you are. He says God has, has given you an identity. God has given you an identity. Here's what it says in verse, verse 2. He says, those who are sanctified in Jesus and those who are called to be saints. This is a reminder. This is a reminder that Paul is saying, listen, you have been set apart by God. You have been set apart by God. You are important because God has declared you important. That's what Paul's saying from the very beginning. You are important. Again, their culture... Maybe not very much different than ours. Their culture said your identity was determined by what you achieve. You've got to earn it. You've got to be good enough. If you can, can accomplish something, that's your identity. And here's what Paul just said. Paul said you are sanctified in the past tense, which means it's done. It is complete. It is accomplished. You are sanctified by God. He is speaking this ultimate word of approval and acceptance, and love, and peace, and security to the church at Corinth. That your identity is not based on what you can accomplish in your own strength. Your identity is given to you by God because he has called you. He has set you apart. He says you're called to be saints. Speaking an identity, speaking of value, and worth, and purpose that is given to them by God. Not something they earn be called a saint is given to them by God. And so rather than, than working for our identity and having the self-manufactured acceptance of trying to meet other people's expectations of ourselves, Paul is saying, listen, every one of us listening, whether you're in the church at Corinth or the church at Restoration, he's saying you have received an identity from God. You have received your acceptance from God apart from yourself. In fact, let me just 
pause right here for a second. Let me go on a little rabbit trail. I love that he says, those who are sanctified and those who are called saints. Who, who are the people that are sanctified? And who are the people that are called saints? See, if you look in the verse, verse 2, it says, it says this, that all those who call on the name of the Lord. He says, call to be saints together with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord. See, for us to be sanctified, for us to be called a saint, doesn't mean we have to jump through a bunch of hoops. Doesn't mean we got to clean up our life and, and follow all the religious rules and, and follow the expectations that people have of us. We don't have to go to a, a priest and confess our sins. No, what Scripture just said is that we humbly admit our sin and, and our brokenness and our inability to save ourselves and we call on the name of Jesus. That's all it takes. He's the Savior, He's the answer, He's the one who changes us from a sinner to a saint. It's not by following the rules. It's by us calling on the name of the Lord. So Paul begins this letter by telling them who they are. He says, number one, you have an, you have an identity that, and value that is given to you by God. And not only that, number two, he says God has equipped you to, with all that you need to live out your identity. Look what he says in verse five. He says in verse five, he says, in every way you've been enriched by God. God has given it to you. You've been enriched by God with all speech and knowledge so that you are not lacking any gift. Again, look at the culture of Corinth. We've got to understand you have a culture that values success, values abilities. You've got to accomplish in order to succeed. And Paul just said this. Paul said, God has given you all the gifts, all the skills, all the abilities that you need to accomplish what God has for you which means your abilities and skills, they're God-given. They're not things that we manufacture, that we learn, that we try and accomplish on our own. They are given to us by God, just like our identity. Our skills and our abilities are given to us by God. They are bestowed by God upon us. So number one, God says, this is who you are. Paul says, this is who you are. You are, your identity is given to you by God. Number two, number two, we are equipped by God to live out our identity. And number three, Paul goes further and says that God actually sustains your future. God sustains your future. That's what he says in verse eight. He says, Jesus will sustain you to the end and you'll be guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God who will sustain you to the end. Who sustains them? Who sustains them? Is it their obedience that sustains them to the end? No, that's not what it says. Is it their good works and the right theology? I'm being the right side of the political uh, debate that, that'll lead them to be guiltless before God? No, that's not what it says. Is it their success financially and relationally and at work and in the community? Is that what sustains them to the end? No, that's not what sustains them to the end. What sustains them to the end? Nothing that they accomplish. It's God alone. God alone sustains us to the end. Can you imagine? Can you imagine getting a letter like this? Can you imagine getting a letter like this from a, from a leader? from a, a supervisor, from someone in authority over you. You see, we understand that, you know, like a medal of honor. You get a medal of honor because you 
were brave in some achievement. You had the success. You get a letter of recommendation because you've done good work. But Paul starts this letter out by saying, listen, you haven't done these things, but these are things that are given to you by God. This is who you are. Paul says your identity, your acceptance, your value is given to you by God. Your ability to, to, to be all that God called you to be is not something you figure out on your own. It's given to you by God. Your future does not depend on your faithfulness. Your future depends on God who sustains you to the end. None of this is tied to your performance. What Paul is saying is, is regardless of, of where you are, regardless of what you bring to the table, if you call on the name of the Lord, God finds you incredibly valuable and worthy of his investment in you and in your life. And see, this is such a surprising way to start out this letter. Because we kind of expect Paul to rip these guys to shreds. They're kind of a messed up church. They're pretty jacked up. These guys are not living like saints. They're not living like people who are called by God. There's incredible dysfunction within the church at Corinth. And the, in fact, in the next couple of verses we're going to look at next week, immediately jump in there. We're going to see that there's divisions and factions in the church. There's one group in the church that says, we like this leader. We like this idea. Another group that says, we like this idea. We like, we like this one. And there's these factions that are not working together, that are, are judging one another, that are not cohesive. There's an unwillingness by the church at Corinth to actually submit to any religious authority. They won't even recognize the, uh, the authority of the apostle Paul in planning the church. There's scandalous sexual immorality that's being tolerated within the church. The church, there's a lack of humility for one another, a lack of respect for one another. You've got members of the church that are suing one another. You've got unequal treatment between uh, the rich and the poor in the church. You've got a sense of superiority over one person's spiritual gifts and how they worship over someone else. In fact, there's one case so bad in this church that the apostle Paul actually instructs the church to remove a member from the church because of how uh, deliberate their sin is. This is a pretty jacked up church. We'd expect Paul to come out swinging. You fools, get this right. Get your lives together. Get this figured out. But instead we find this unconditional encouragement, this affirmation of who they are. What Paul is saying, he's saying you imperfect Christians, you imperfect people, you are sanctified by Jesus. You are called a saint, not by your good works, but by Jesus. Jesus is the one who has enriched you with speech and knowledge and abilities to, to live the life that God has called you to live. Jesus is the one who sustains you to the end. Jesus is the one who accomplishes this for you. And to make certain we understand this, Paul says in verse 9, he says to make sure we understand that Jesus is the one who does this. Verse 9, he says, God is faithful. God is faithful. The one who has called you into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful to accomplish these things in us and through us. See, what Paul's trying to help us understand is as a Christian, your identity 
your ability to live out that identity, your future. As a Christian, your identity and your ability to carry out that identity and your future, it is not secured and guaranteed by our faithfulness. It's not guaranteed by our good works. Our identity, our abilities, our future is given to us and secured and guaranteed to us by the faithfulness of God. Again, the rest of the letter, there's going to be some hard words for the church at Corinth, some difficult conversations, and every one of those conversations is framed in this truth right here, that it is God's faithfulness, what God has accomplished for us, it overrides our failures. God's faithfulness to us, it overrides our failures. Christ's work on our behalf is more foundational to who we are than our ability is to denounce or spot or or stain our identity by our own failings. Paul is saying, look, 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 church. Church, you may be falling apart of the seams. You may be falling apart and you look terrible and things are bad, but the God, the one who has called you, he's the one who secures your identity. He secures your, your past, your present, and your future. He's the one that is holding you together. And this is such a simple and powerful truth for us to grasp. Our identity is not based on what we can accomplish in our own strength. It is what God has given to us. He's the one who has sanctified us. And we've called on the name of the Lord Jesus. He has has set us apart for him. He has, has no longer views us as a sinner. Now he sees us as a saint. Not because of what we've done, but because we're called by God. And this is where we come to the point where there's some application. What do we do with this? I've got a friend that I've been talking to recently. And this is an an amazing person. I, I love this person. They have such a huge heart. This person is a giver. They give and give and give. They'd give you the shirt off their back. This person is phenomenal. Right now, they're kind of going through a hard time, struggling a little bit. And they said to me, they said, well, 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 I'm so used to being giver, of being a giver. I'm struggling because I don't feel like I have anything to give right now. And I said, that's the great thing about the church is right now, it's your turn to receive. I know it's uncomfortable. It's not easy for you. But now, right now, you've got to begin to receive. You've got to open yourself up to receive from others. It's your application today isn't to go and do. Her application is simply to receive. Her application today is to receive a word of encouragement from God that if you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus, that who you are, your identity, your abilities, and your future, it is secured and already done, already accomplished by God. He has set it apart. You, who you are, has been secured by God already. And we just have to trust in that and rest in that truth. And we don't have to strive for it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to try and achieve it anymore. God has already said, I'm giving it to you. I've given it to you. This is who you are. And it almost sounds easy. It almost sounds, well, all I have to do is rest in this truth. But man, it is so tough. It's so tough for us to actually live this out in real life. Because our culture is not unlike the culture at Corinth. 
So much of our identity and our ability and our future is tied to how we produce, what we do, how I'm doing, what my efforts look like. All too often, we put too much value on pedigree and position, emphasizing competence over character. So often, we put a value on what you have done for me, and that is your value. In fact, I'll be honest, just in my own personal life, and Satan uses this against me all the time. Where I look at the roles that God has put me in, as a, look at the role as, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend. And it's kind of like Satan is so quick to remind me of all my failures, to remind me of how I don't live up. It's kind of like I'm in the moment and Satan reminds me, hey, why are you so quick to get angry? You've been a Christian for a lot. Shouldn't you be over that now? Can't you get a handle on that? Why are you so quick to struggle in this? Reminds me of how inadequate I feel as a father because I didn't have a father growing up. And I sometimes struggle, well, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know how to do this. And Satan is like, hey, of course you can't do this. You don't know what you're doing. When I consider the incredible weight that that a pastor carries, especially in a season like this, Satan just reminds me again and again and again of my own insecurities that I feel as a leader. That there are more qualified and more competent people who could do a better job than I'm doing. And Satan reminds me of this again and again and again. As I consider my struggles in my failures to live up to expectations of how I don't feel like I can accomplish enough, Satan is quick to cause me to doubt my identity, to doubt my abilities, to doubt my future. I'm not good enough. I haven't accomplished enough. Why can't I figure this out? Why am I still struggling? Why do I still listen to the snake and pick him up and put him in my jacket when I know he's going to bite me? This is where we have to come back again and again and again to the word that Paul just shared with us today. That our identity and our future is not built on our success. Because if it is, at very best, it's a house of cards. Some of us are in that season when we're kind of like, hey, look how great I am. Look how wonderful I am. My, my abilities are great. My identity is wonderful. Look at this house I built. At best, it's a house of cards. Eventually, eventually that house comes tumbling down and you can't be enough. If your identity is built on your own accomplishments at worst, you're hopeless because you recognize I can't be all that God has called me to be. I can't accomplish it in my own strength. And this is why the opening of this letter is so significant. Because our identity is secured and given to us by God's faithfulness, not our own faithfulness. Jesus has already given his life for you. He's given his life for you to speak a word of value to you. To say, you are significant. You are worthy. You are are worth it. I've done this already for you. I've already gone to the cross for you. To speak that word of value that you are worthy. To prove his, his love. He says, it is finished. I've done it for you. There's nothing left to add to it. No amount of good works or obedience is going to do anything else to add to what I've already done for you. He gave himself for you to settle it once and for all. You've been enriched 
by God with every gift and ability that you need to be what God has called you to be. It is given to you by God, given to you by Him. Your future, your future is secured not by human wisdom. Your future is secured by God alone. And that is, that is the truth for us this morning. That we have to just rest in that. Which means we got to stop worrying. We can stop trying so hard to be good enough. We got to stop stressing over how we can't live up to the expectations. We got to stop trying so hard. And Paul is just trying to tell you just today to receive this encouragement, to receive this, this word of affirmation from God to us. That God is speaking a word of love to us, encouragement to us, that you are enough as you are because God has given you your identity. In fact, I want to ask you this morning, consider where you are in your life right now. Consider the thoughts running through your mind, the struggles you are facing right now. Which of these truths is it that you need to hear today? Which of these truths do you need to just rest in today? Number one is your identity Maybe number one, the truth for you is that your identity is not tied to whatever struggle you are facing today. Whatever weight, whatever burden, whatever struggle you are facing today, your identity is not tied to that. Your identity has already been given to you by God. Number two, your abilities are not limited by what you can and cannot do. Your abilities have been given to you by God to accomplish what he's called you to do. Or number three, your future is not determined by your faithfulness. It's determined by God's faithfulness. See, I invite you this morning in the next couple of minutes just to reflect on that truth. Whatever it is for you, and just sit in it. Just soak in those words. Believe those words that God is speaking to you. That all the struggle that you're holding on to, all the stress and the anxiety, man, just, just receive this word from God. Just rest in it. God is speaking a word of love and encouragement and affirmation over you today. And just sit and just think about that truth over and over and over again. Tell yourself that truth over and over and over again. Cling to that truth. Rejoice in that truth. Because that's where hope is found. Our hope is found in knowing in who we are. That we are called saints, just like the church at Corinth. A church that is dysfunctional. A church that can't figure it out. They're called saints not because they're worthy, but because God is worthy. Because God has declared it. Because God has given it to them. And if you have called on the name of the Lord, God has given that to you. And that's the truth we need to rest in. Let me pray.